Amen. You can be seated and open up your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, if you want. Uh, kid came up to me after a service last week and said, Pastor Kyle, just about how much longer are we going to be in Romans chapter 5? Uh, and I get it. We've been here for the whole fall, and we got a little bit while uh, left. Uh, but I, I do want us exploring Romans 5 deeply because I think it will bear significant impact on, on our ability to understand the rest of the letter. And this is an, an incredibly pivotal letter to understand. And so we're doing a deep dive on what is a very dense chapter. And today we're asking the question, where did sin come from? And it may feel clear to you. Maybe you grew up in the church, you grew up around the Bible, you grew up around the Christian story. And for you, the question, where did sin come from, seems pretty basic. It seems like, oh, that's pretty clear cut. Uh, This is how the story goes. Let me tell you how the story goes. That's where sin came from. But it's not just basic. It's actually really textured. It it can feel even a little bit complicated. And one songwriter, he was finding himself asking a question of this story. This is the song. He goes on to say, you've heard the story. You know how it goes. Once upon a garden, we were lovers with no clothes. Fresh from the soil, we were beautiful and true and controlled of our emotions till we ate the poison fruit. So he's saying, listen, okay, that's the story. That's what I heard growing up. That's uh, what I heard the Bible has to say. But now he begins to kind of peel back and go, do I, why do I really believe that? Or maybe is that really what happened? He goes on, wait just a minute. You expect me to believe that all this misbehaving came from one enchanted tree? And helpless to fight it, we should all be satisfied with this magical explanation for why the living die. And the chorus asks the question, is this why it's hard to be a decent human being? He's expressing skepticism. And listen, I I don't want to dunk on this guy because I think a lot of times we're a little bit afraid to question assumed beliefs. Question things that we were told growing up. And if you grew up around this, then then maybe you've never really asked yourself, "Why, why do I believe? that sin came from the garden or sin came from Adam and Eve or that the Bible's account of sin is true. I mean, honest questions deserve honest answers. And this song is fascinating for two reasons. One, because it acknowledges that the world is broken. That's where it begins. I mean, the song is like, hey, things are messed up. And regardless of what we believe about God or about the world, I don't know that I've ever met a single person who is like, yeah, the world's great. The world's exactly how it should be. I think things are aces in the world. Most people are absolutely convinced that the world is broken. Now, they may not all agree on why that's the case, but just about everybody agrees that the world is messed up, that the world is broken, that there is something wrong, and so does the songwriter. But he kind of expresses some skepticism. Did all of this brokenness start with some magic tree in an ancient garden with an ancient man and woman? Is that where all the problems began? He's a former Christian, the songwriter is. His name's David Bazan. Uh, And he's wrestling with what he heard. He's wrestling with beliefs that he's assumed. And that's precisely why I want us to spend a few moments today exploring this question, is because I, I think that maybe it's easy for us to forget just how textured, maybe just how complicated it seems when we explore the question, where did sin start? Where did our problems begin? So I'm going to read Romans 5, verses 12 through 14, and then I'll say this is the word of the Lord. It's an invitation for you to respond. You don't have to, but you can respond and say, thanks be to God. The reason we do that is that God has spoken. He hasn't left his people in silence. We want to give thanks for his word. So let me read Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me, let me give you the big idea here, just so you don't miss it. If we misunderstand where salvation comes from, we'll misunderstand where sin comes from. I flipped those, didn't I? If we misunderstand where sin comes from, we'll misunderstand where salvation comes from. If we misunderstand the problem of sin, then we will misunderstand the hope of salvation. And Paul wants us to have no confusion as to where sin came from. Look in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. This is Paul referencing what you may be familiar with. Even if you don't know the story, the story of Adam. The story of Adam. This is the one man that Paul is speaking about here. Sin came into the world through one man. What does this mean? Well, it means that Adam, the sin of Adam, brought brokenness, sin, death, and shame to the whole world. To every person born after him inherits that brokenness, sin, death, and shame. You see, before Adam sinned, everything was good. Not perfect, but good. Everything was good. Everything was as it was intended to be. And when God created this world good, he gives humanity freedom. Freedom to obey or freedom to disobey. And what do they do with their freedom? They disobey. They disobey God. Look at Genesis chapter 3. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. But let's go all the way back because to really kind of get a sense of what Paul is getting at here, it's important that we look at Genesis 3 verses 1 through 7 because it's easy for us to just go, wait, hold on. Are you telling me that all of our problems were because Adam made a bad fruit selection, right? Is that really why God judged the world because Adam ate the wrong fruit off the wrong tree? Well, I think we'll find out that there was something more substantive going on beneath the surface. But to do that, we got to look at Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. It begins like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, when we read this story, it is very clear almost immediately that the real problem, the real tragedy of sin isn't merely that Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit they should not have eaten, that there was something deeper going on. That was merely the inciting event. But the substance underneath the surface was an act of rebellion. You see, what Adam and Eve do in the garden is not eat the wrong piece of fruit. They stage a spiritual coup. Now, it's a failed coup, but they attempt it nonetheless. They try to overthrow God's kingdom. This is exactly what the serpent promised in verse 4, isn't it? But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Now, hold up. Adam and Eve were already like God. They were image bearers of God. God had created them in his image. That's what Genesis chapter one tells us. So what's the promise of the serpent? The promise of the serpent isn't that they will be like God. The problem, promise of the serpent is they will be God. That they will overthrow God's rule and reign and they will get to establish their own. You see, what happens in the garden, what happens at the fall is an act of spiritual terrorism. It's an act of spiritual rebellion. This is Adam and Eve's sin. It is rebellion against God. It is rejecting God's rule and reign for their own. It is rejecting God's word and listening to the serpent. It's worshiping the creature or the creaturely over the creator. These are the things, the nuts and bolts of the fall. It is not merely that they did uh, eat the wrong fruit. It's that they did something far graver than that, which is they said, you know what, God, we don't want your rule and reign. We want our own. We don't want your kingdom. We want ours. That's at the heart of sin. That's at the heart of the fall. And this idea, you may say, well, okay, but like, why does it trace itself through one man? Why is Paul so emphatic in Romans 5 that sin has entered the world through one man? Because at the very least, it seems like there were two people involved in Genesis 3, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of interesting? Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, but hold on. Adam and Eve were there in the garden. Why this emphasis on the one man? Well, this is what theologians will often call Adam is our federal head. If you're taking notes on the book of Romans, that would be a phrase to write down. Federal head. Now, I know that seems abstract and conceptual, so let me kind of tease it out for us a little bit. Adam was our representative before God. Adam was the ambassador of the human race before God. And just like when an ambassador fails, his failure is seen against all of whom he represents. Just like a representative, when a representative fails, that, re- that representative's failure is given over to those he represents. So too, Adam's failure, Adam's rejection and rebellion against God is imputed. It's put in our account. He was our representative. He was our ambassador. And his failure is given over to us. And his failure doesn't just impact him. Because no, no sin ever just impacts the one who committed it. Adam's failure impacts the world. Therefore, just as sin came into the world, sin impacts the world. You know what the Greek word used here for world is? Cosmos. Do you know what it means? World. There's nothing magical about it. It just means world. Sin impacts everything. Paul wants us to see this. Sin has always been universal in its collateral damage. From the very beginning, sin had a universal impact. Everything that exists but God has been impacted by sin. Everything was broken by Adam's sin. Sin hasn't merely broken us, it's broken the world. It's fractured four fundamental relationships. We talked about this in Romans 1. So if you remember back all the way back to the beginning of 2021, maybe you remember this. It's broken four fundamental relationships. Sin breaks our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with God. Right? We see this immediately in Genesis 3 because it says their eyes were open. They realized they were naked and unashamed. They sewed fig leaves together. Then it says that they heard the Lord God walking in the garden. What did they do? They hid. They hid. Sin fractures our relationship with God immediately. 
We see the immediate impact of sin on Adam and Eve's life, and we're born into this world with a fractured relationship with God. The second relationship is it fractures our relationship with one another. Why'd they sow fig leaves? They sowed fig leaves to hide themselves from each other. Sin fractures our relationship with one another. You ever, you ever commit a wrong against somebody? Certainly we all have. You ever done something that you were embarrassed about? That person that you've wronged, or the, maybe the person that wronged you, don't you have this desire to avoid them? You ever run into somebody at a random place, and you're like, ooh, that was awkward. Yeah? You guys are looking at me like, that has never happened to you. That absolutely happens to you, right? You roll up into the Tom Thumb looking for your oat milk, right? And there's another person looking for their oat milk, and you're like, wow, I really wish we didn't see each other at the Tom Thumb looking for oat milk, right? Because the last time we saw each other, you know, you said something offensive or you hurt my feelings or I hurt you. Listen, sin fractures our relationship with one another. That sense of shame and embarrassment, that avoidance mentality that we have, that's because we know that when there's, unrecon- when there's like an unreconciled heart between two people, it's uncomfortable. Sin fractures our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with one another. It fractures our relationship with ourself. We no longer see ourselves for who we are. We no longer have a true and accurate view of yourself. You may think you know you better than anyone, but I got to tell you, ever look back on your middle school photos? You have not always been the best judge of you, okay? There was a time in which you thought something was really cool, really great, and then a few years later you go, what was I thinking? You don't always know you the best. Why is that? Sir, shouldn't you know you the best? No. Unfortunately, because of sin's impact, you don't know you the best. God knows you the best. Sin fractures our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with one another. It fractures our relationship with self. And it fractures our relationship with the natural order. Somebody came up to me a couple weeks ago, man, Kyle, it just seems like the world is broken. Shouldn't things be better? Yes, they should be better, right? I often hear people say, man, work is so hard. Well, that's a result of sin. The ground doesn't work with us. It works against us. Work is hard. I'll tell you something. You can't life life hack your way out of work being hard. It's going to be hard forever. That's what the Bible says because the ground, it rebuffs your work. It It doesn't want your work. It's got thorns and thistles. Your work is hard and your work will be hard until the end of all toil when the kingdom comes. That's... That's a consequence of sin. Sin fractures our relationship with the natural order. Now, you may think, now, Kyle, are you telling me that the world is broken because Adam and Eve ate the wrong fruit from the wrong tree? Well, yes and no. Paul is saying something more substantive than that because Genesis 3 is saying something more substantive than that. The world is broken because humanity chose their own rule and reign over God's rule and reign, and it was a bad decision. They disobeyed God. They rejected his rule and reign, They said, we want to establish our own. And in doing so, they tried to overthrow God's kingdom. They failed, and yet there were consequences of this failure. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. He was our representative. His sin, the guilt and the shame of that sin, the consequences of that sin are passed down to us. And it's easy for us to feel like, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there. And yet, we all know that you can be guilty by association. I mean, we talk about it like even just anecdotally in our culture. 
guilt by association. And with Paul, not only are we guilty by association, we're guilty by participation. That's what has happened in Adam. We're not just guilty because we're associated with Adam. That would be to say too little of what Paul is saying in this verse. We're not merely guilty because we're humans and Adam was human. We're guilty because we were in Adam when Adam sinned. That's the bad news of Romans 5.12. Look at it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, the tragedy of the fall is that while you and I were not physically present in that garden with Adam and Eve, we were spiritually present in them. They were our representatives. They were our ambassadors. And when they failed, their failure was given over to us. They were our representatives. They were our federal heads. And their failure has an impact on us. And what is the principal impact of this failure? What is the principal consequence of this failure? We'll look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 17. This is the promise that God gives to Adam and Eve. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God tells them exactly what's going to happen if they rebel and reject God. He tells them exactly what will happen if they try to overthrow God's kingdom. He tells them exactly what will happen if disobedience happens. It is death. But do Adam and Eve die when they disobey? Do they immediately just vanish? No. So what is going on in Genesis 3? And how does that change how we read Romans 5? Well, in Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve don't immediately die, but something immediately happens, which is they begin to experience fracturing. They begin to experience separation. And in verse 19 of Genesis 3, and all the consequences of sin, we hear this, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You see, death was coming as a result of sin, but it wasn't immediate, at least not physical death. But we do see something immediately, which is separation from God. You see, death in the Bible is not merely physical death. Because you can be born alive and yet spiritually dead. Scripture is abundantly clear about that. And what Paul wants us to see is that death spread to all men. Even if we didn't sin like Adam, death spread to all of us. Why? Because all sinned in Adam. You see, we can be born into this world physically alive and spiritually dead. That's how each one of us was born into this world. That's how everyone who's ever lived after Adam has been born into this world physically alive and spiritually dead. What is happening here is this. Physical death is the fulfillment that spiritual death is the promise of. We are born into this world spiritually dead and when we die physically, it is a visual and symbolic reminder that we have merely entered into the great consequence of sin. And all of us will experience this apart from the resurrection of the dead or the coming of Jesus Christ our Lord. Physical death comes for us all. We were brought from the ground and to the ground we return. We are from dust and we return to dust. What Paul is saying in Romans 5 is this. When sin came into the world, it immediately impacted the world by creating spiritual death where there had been spiritual life. And for those who have been born spiritually dead, physical death is a great torment, a great consequence, and a great result 
of the impact of sin on this world. It is a reminder, physical death is, that we are not limitless, that we are not infinite, that we do not and cannot, apart from the intervention of God, know true life forever. And yet, these consequences of sin, they impact us greatly and significantly. We live in a world, whether we acknowledge it or not, that is marked by death and the presence of death. Over the last couple of years, we've had to grapple with death in a renewed way, having to kind of grapple with it on a global level in a way that we don't often do. And I often find people asking me, why does death exist? Death exists because of man's rebellion against God. Death is not supposed to be here. Death is not what God has intended, and yet it is what is as a result of humanity's rebellion. And the only one who can bring death to death, the only one who can destroy death forever, is God. That's the hope of salvation, is that death can be destroyed forever. First Corinthians, another letter from the Apostle Paul, he'll say death is the last enemy to be defeated. We live in a world right now where the power of death is gone, but the presence of death remains. We know that death is not the end. God tells us it's not the end, and yet death still strikes at the core of the human heart, human desires, and human fears. And it has from the very beginning. Death is a consequence of sin's impact in the world. And I know that for many of us, and certainly for the songwriter that we mentioned earlier, he's wondering, should I really be impacted by Adam's sin? Why do I deserve the consequences of Adam's rebellion? Right? Isn't that kind of unfair? It's not right that I would be implicated in this. And yet we all know that we can be affected by another's actions. We can be drastically affected by another's actions. We can have an, a, a huge impact can be had in our lives because of someone else's actions. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God is able to step in through grace to redeem what sin has made wrong. You know, I was... I told this story in the first service, and I probably shouldn't have told it there. I probably shouldn't tell it now, but I'm going to anyways. Um, I was, when I was thinking about this sermon, I was thinking about, man, when was there a time when I have had an impact on other people's lives in a way that wasn't fair to them? And I was thinking about uh, a few Thanksgivings ago. I made a turkey. Um, I, we don't eat turkey in the Worley home any longer, and this is why. Um, I smoked a turkey. And what I did not know is that you should be very diligent when cleaning a turkey uh, because it's easy to cross-contaminate everything else. Evidently, they're filthy animals. I had no idea, but they are. So newsflash for you going into Thanksgiving this year, if you're making a turkey, sanitize your hands a lot. I did not. I cross-contaminated everything else. And I ruined not one, but multiple family Thanksgivings that year. Uh, and I ended up in the ER. My wife ended up in the ER, both food sick and dehydrated. It was the very worst Thanksgiving. And we don't eat turkey any longer because of that. We do brisket, which is a holier meat anyways. Just, and all the Texans said amen, right? So, but that's a story in which I did something wrong. But it had impact and effect on a lot of other people. A lot of innocent bystanders, so to speak. Paul is saying that, but he's saying something more than that, okay? He's not just saying, listen, you've been impacted by Adam's sin. He's saying, you've been impacted by Adam's sin. And when Adam sinned, you sinned. We all sinned. We all made this mistake. We were in him. He was our spiritual representative. And when we think about this, we can ask ourselves, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with us. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, we were all impacted in it and through it. And, and I wonder if part of the reason why we have a hard time believing this is because we think sin is an incredibly personal and private thing. And that if it's only between me and God, it has no collateral impact on others. But sin has never been that way. Sin has never been that way. From the very first moment that sin entered into the world, sin's impact, it stretches beyond the self. And let me tell you this, just as, a, as your pastor, let me encourage you. If you are nursing private sin, hidden sin, then you are believing the lie that this will affect nobody else as long as I can keep it contained and controlled. And it never stays contained and controlled. I'll tell you, from personal experience, if you're nursing hidden private sin, it will never just stay with you. It is having an impact on you, on your community, on your church, on the world around you, whether you know it to be or not. And when it stays there in the dark, in the hidden places, in the private places, and it remains unchecked, it spreads like a weed. Sin has never been just personal and private. And maybe one of the reasons we have a hard time imagining that we could have been implicated in Adam's sin is because we still think that sin is just between me and God. It's not. Sin always has a corporate impact from the very beginning and even now. And so if you are nursing hidden private sin, let me tell you, run to God's grace in Jesus. I can tell you, there's nothing good there but destruction. But with God, there is grace and grace abounding. And when you bring your sin to a church that believes in grace, they will not do what the culture does. They will not cancel you and put a scarlet letter on your chest. They will give you the grace that they have received. Don't stay in the dark with hidden sin. Sin never stays in check and controlled. It's never private. It's never personal. It is always having collateral damage from the very beginning. From the very beginning. We have sinned. We sinned in Adam. And because of that, death has spread to all men. But I can't just leave you with the bad news. Next week, we're gonna dive deep into verses 13 and 14. But I can't just leave you with the bad news that sin has brought separation from God and spiritual death. Because look at verse 13 and 14. Let me just give you just a note here as we look towards what God has for us in Jesus. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Verse 13, Romans 5. But sin is not counted where there is no law. We're gonna spend all week next week exploring what that means. But listen to this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. You and I. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You see, the bad news is that we have been broken from the start. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. The Bible traces this failure through Adam, who functioned as our ambassador, our representative, our federal head over all of humanity. And because of this, we have sinned. We are subject to the guilt, to the shame, to the fracturing, and to the consequences of sin. This is incredibly bad news. Because it means that all of us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, have been broken by sin and are under the just condemnation of God. But there's good news. Adam was a type. Adam was a type. There was one who was coming who would be a better Adam. Adam was a shadow of a greater Adam, a more perfect Adam, what Paul will call elsewhere a last Adam. Someone who would come and would be faithful exactly where Adam had failed. You see, if we misunderstand the origin of sin, we will misunderstand the origin of salvation. If we believe that sin is primarily 
a skewed moral compass or a debt that we owe, then guess what? We will spend our whole lives trying to balance the books with God, and you never can do it. You'll never be able to balance those books. They're weighted against you. You're in a hole you cannot dig out of. There is nothing that you can do to fix the sin of Adam. Nothing. Even if you wanted to. Even if you wanted to give your whole life to leveling out the scales, you can't do it. You don't have the power. You don't have the resources. You need a substitute. You need a substitute. You need a new representative. You need a new mediator. You need someone better than Adam to represent you before God. And wouldn't you know it? That's exactly what God has provided in Jesus. A better representative. A perfect substitute. Someone to mediate on your behalf. You don't want to represent you before God. And you're born with Adam representing you before God. You need a new representative. You need a new substitute. You need someone to stand in your place, to take your position. You can't do it on your own. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. You see, Jesus Christ has brought a salvation that's not merely an exchanging of a broken moral compass for a correct one, not merely a balancing of the books. God has provided in Christ a fundamental change in our identity. A complete reorientation of our being. A change in our legal designation before God. And he has done that in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. If the problem of sin is a core level problem, a problem that goes all the way back in ancient history, guess what? You're not going to fix it with a little bit more time on Sunday. You're not going to fix it with a little bit more money given or a little bit more time expended or a little bit more guilt, a little bit more shame. You're not going to fix the problem of sin just by feeling bad about it. You need something greater. And this is what God has provided in Jesus Christ, a fundamental change in who we are, a new representative before God, a representative that can stand in our place where Adam currently stands. We need a new mediator, a substitute, someone who was faithful exactly where Adam failed, someone who kept the law perfectly on our behalf, someone who doesn't condemn the world, by their sin, but takes upon the sin and condemnation of the world and achieves our salvation. We need somebody greater. We need somebody better, and we can't be that person. You and I, we have been broken beyond our repair by Adam's sin, but we can be blessed beyond our just reward by Christ's salvation. You and I were broken beyond our own repair by Adam's sin, but we can be blessed beyond our just reward through Christ, in Christ alone. Christ has the solution of salvation. He stands as our substitute before God. And this profound reality is the heart of the gospel. Paul in Romans 5 is just beating the drum over and over and over again because it's easy for us to hear this on Sunday and forget at the moment that we walk out. To enter into the exhausting rat race of trying to prove ourselves to God, of constantly wondering, I wonder what God thinks of me. Or on the flip side, never wondering what God thinks of us. So callous and hardened by sin that we're kind of surprised that God wouldn't be impressed with us. We're pretty great. We've got things figured out. We don't really feel our need. Paul keeps giving us the gospel because we keep needing it. That's why we spent all fall in Romans 5. That's why we're going to spend a little bit longer in there this fall. Because we need the gospel. It's easy to forget. One of the things I love about Richardson, maybe you love it too, one of the things I love about this church is we're not all the same. 
I love our community for that reason. I mean, you can drive around Richardson. I drive around all the time, meet people I've never met before from places sometimes I've never heard of. Get to engage with cultures and meet new folks. And even in life at this church, we're not all the same. Different experiences, different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds, different stories, experiences, educations, different uh, interests, different hobbies. We're, we're different, and our community is different. I love that. But of all the different people that you and I have met, there's only two fundamental identities in this world. There's only two ways of being in this world, in Adam or in Christ. It doesn't matter where you come from, where you're going, what your background is, you are either in Adam or in Christ. And guess what? Everyone you've ever met has had that first identity. Everyone. Everyone's born into it. Since Adam, everyone has been born in Adam. It's a fundamental identity. Everyone you've ever met has been broken by sin and in need of the grace of the gospel. Now, not everyone you've ever met has been born again in Jesus. But God is inviting us to have our identities exchanged, to be removed from being in Adam to being in Christ Jesus. There are two homes to live in this side of heaven. One has a crumbling foundation and a falling roof. And one has a sure and firm foundation and is a refuge for the weak. And God is inviting everyone into this home. Into a home that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the good news of the gospel. Adam has failed, Christ has been faithful, and Christ keeps his people all the way to the end. That's the good news of the gospel for you and for me and for our world. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you have invited us into life in Christ Jesus, that we can make our home with God in Christ because of your great grace. I pray for those among us who are in Christ Jesus, I pray that today would be a reminder of the glory of the good news. It would lead them to deeper worship, mission, and obedience. God, I pray for those who might just be nursing hidden or private sin, thinking if it just stays with me, then it really has no impact. I pray that they'll see from the beginning there has always been an impact to that. And there will be in their life. And I pray that they would confess and repent and run to God's grace. And I pray, God, for those in our families, among our friends, coworkers, maybe even in this room today, who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus, they have not made their home with God in Christ, I pray that they would. And I pray that there they would receive grace and grace abounding. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you stand with us as we receive the Lord's Supper?